As we stand, let's pray, shall we? Father God, as we come to listen to your word this morning, we listen to this strange and in some ways senseless story. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please sit down. Well, if you've uh, watched any television or listened to any radio this week, then you can't have missed the results of the 2010 Social Attitude Survey. Apparently, only 50% of us in this country now describe ourselves as Christian. That's down from 66% in 1983. And only 7% of us describe ourselves as very religious. More worryingly, perhaps, only 17% of us think it is okay for religious believers to try to recruit other people to their faith. That's the world we live in. Is it any wonder that also during this week, the, um, they've been debating the Equality Bill in Parliament on the rights of Christian organisations to employ people according to their beliefs. The question has to be asked, what right do we have to speak up? If we represent only 7% of the British people, and most people think that we shouldn't try to win others to our faith, then shouldn't we just shut up and enjoy our minority interest behind those closed doors? Indeed, that's what the National Secular Society are saying this week. They say that people do not like religion in public life, and they do not regard religion as a basis for personal ethics. In other words, we should all be allowed to get on with our hobby, but we shouldn't have any role in public decision-making or policy. So what are we to do in the light of this? Well, opening Mark's Gospel at chapter 6 and verse 14 on page 1008 is a good place to start if you'd like to do that. You see here in verse 14, we meet King Herod. Now, this is not Herod the Great who tried to slaughter Jesus at birth, but this is his son, Herod Antipas. Antipas was the puppet Jewish tetrarch, or ruler, who was put in charge of Galilee and Petria by the occupying Romans. Now Antipas and his wife Herodias seem to have the knack of annoying everybody around them. They annoyed the Romans by pretending to be more important than they actually were. They modelled their court on the imperial court in Rome, and they were always asking the emperor to allow King Antipas, or King Herod, to be allowed to use that title, king. In actual fact, he was never allowed to use that title by the Romans. So Mark calling him King Herod here is probably a way of pulling his leg. Eventually, in AD 39, after many years of being lobbied by Herod, the Emperor Caligula finally lost patience with this upstart from Galilee and sent him off into exile in Gaul, near the modern city of Lyon in France. You see, Herod Antipas upset the Romans. He didn't want to accept their authority, although it was plainly clear that they had it over him. Herod Antipas didn't fare much better with the Jews either, largely because he refused to submit to their Jewish law. It was one rule for him and another for everyone else. He built a capital, Tiberius, which was a place of beauty and status. But Antipas had it built on the site of an ancient burial ground. And by this choice, Herod Antipas clearly excluded any Jew who took the law seriously, because a Jew couldn't even enter a graveyard without making themselves unclean, let alone live on top of one. 
His marriage to Herodias was equally scandalous. She had been married to Herod's brother, Philip, and he was still alive. And yet he divorced his own wife, his first wife, and he persuaded Herodias to marry him. So not only was she the wife of his brother, but she was also his niece, the daughter of another brother. Confused? You will be by Herod's family. In other words, Herod Antipas and Herodias did exactly what seemed right to them. They detested outside authority, whether it came from the Romans above, their political masters, or from the Jewish religion. They thought that they could make their own rules. And what they did was nothing to do with anybody else. It was a private morality, no business of anyone else. They had outgrown all that religious nonsense. And isn't that how today's society works? People here in 2010 have an equal dislike for all external authority. We like to do what seems right to us, to make our own rules and apply our own private morality. 60% of the people in the survey of social attitudes said that there can be no absolutely clear guidelines of what is good and evil. 60% of people say there's no clear guidelines about what is good and evil. And the same number, 60%, think that morality is a personal matter and society should not make everyone follow the same standard. You see, it's a complete rejection of any kind of external authority, just like our King Herodias and dear Herodias, King Herod and dear Herodias. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? We can all do just exactly as we like. There's no good or evil. We can just do, seem what, do what seems right to us. Surely, in such a world, there is nothing that can possibly trouble our conscience. After all, by its very nature, we should never feel guilt or shame because we're just doing what seems right to us. What could be easier? Why then, in our story, is Herod racked with guilt? Why is it that as soon as Herod hears of all the miraculous things that the disciples have been doing in the name of Jesus on their mission in verses 7 to 13, that he immediately thinks of John in verse 16? It says, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Perhaps he still remembers his very great distress in verse 26 when he realized he was going to have to murder this man. Herod's comment is made sometime after John's death, but still those events are preying on Herod's mind. Why is that? Well, I think it's because John had made a stand and in his heart, Herod knew that John had been right. And he just couldn't face that truth. So that's my first point for this morning. The importance of making a stand for what is right. The importance of making a stand for what is right. Now, John was no stranger to attracting attention. Any man who wears camel hair and eats locusts and wild honey is no shrinking violet. But up to that point, he managed to keep out of trouble whilst he just spoke to the poor. But as soon as he starts to apply his message of repentance to the rulers of the land, the Jewish religious re leaders, and to the king himself, that's when he starts to get into trouble. Why doesn't he just keep quiet about Herod and Herodias and their little arrangement? After all, everyone else does. They say their business is their own. It's nothing to do with us. Why doesn't John just keep quiet? Even Josephus, the, uh, the first century Jewish historian, he wasn't silly. He waited until Herod was safely in exile in France before writing about him. And even then, he took the, the, uh, the easy route, 
and he just blamed the woman. He wrote, Herodias and, wrote about Herodias and said, she took it into her head to flout the ways of her fathers. But John, he went straight to the heart of the matter. And he told Herod directly in verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So why did John speak out? Because he recognized that he was under a higher authority. He said, it is not lawful. No doubt, he quoted Leviticus uh, chapter 18 and verse 16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. And Leviticus 20 and verse 21, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. You see, John knew that we are all under the authority of God's law. And that's what Herod could not stand, because he wanted to do what he saw fit. He agreed with the social attitude survey in 2010 that morality is a personal matter. Society should not make everyone follow the same standard. Rico Tice, the evangelist based at All Souls Langham Place in London, recently said this, thinking about a passion for life mission coming up. He says, first of all, we all know that the culture is hardening. The meta-narrative, or big story of the media, is one in which the, the high and holy standards of Christ, the uniqueness of Jesus, and the authority of Scripture are creating more and more anger. So now there is a sort of Christophobia in the culture, a Christophobia in the culture, if you like, and we need to acknowledge this. But what do we do about this Christophobia? Vaughan Roberts, uh, the rector of St. Ebbs in Oxford, puts it like this. He says, Most people assume that Christian faith is the equivalent of a hobby. We may be mystified by another person's choice of pastime, but it never really occurs to us that it really matters that they've chosen ballooning rather than ballroom dancing or basketball. In a similar way, our society regards an individual's choice of belief, whether Christianity, Islam, or atheism, as insignificant. Each to their own, they say. But the Bible presents a different view. Christian faith is not an optional extra that we can happily do without. It is a matter of life and death. Some clothing, he says, advertising and evangelistic mission made the point powerfully. On the back of the T-shirt were the words, no Jesus, no life. And on the front of the T-shirt it said, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no life. During the debate on the Equality Bill in Parliament this week, Lord Tebbett, Norman Tebbett of old, said to his other peers, we have a choice tonight, whether we walk in the fear of the Lord or in the fear of the law of Brussels. I know which way I'm going. Now, obviously, he had his reasons for saying that. But our reason is that it is a matter of life and death. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. You see, we simply must continue to make a stand for what is right because we are all under the higher authority of God's word. And one day all of us will face judgment according to that word. It is truly a matter of life and death. Now for those, those of us with a public calling, our stand may well be in the public sphere and expose us to all kinds of criticism. But the rest of us aren't let off the hook either, because we all need to make a stand in different ways in our own personal lives. I'm going to kill this fly. <laughs> but how do you ask? Always got it. 
We can all make a stand in different ways in our personal lives. But how do we do that? Well, if we discover that a work colleague is living with his partner or that someone else is going out every Friday night and binge drinking, binge drinking their way into hospital, should we launch a full-scale attack into their lifestyle choice? You shouldn't do that. You can't possibly do that. How, how did it ever occur to you? Well, I guess there may be a time and a place for that, but you'll have to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance on that one. But a much better way is probably simply to make our stand on the only authority that we have. That's why when people come to a Christianity Explored course or an Alpha course, we don't sit there and give them lessons about moral behavior. We simply open up the Bible and let the Holy Spirit speak to them through the words written in this book. You see, in short, we need to find ways to allow God's word to convict people of sin, to allow God's word to provide that comfort and forgiveness that we know in our hearts, and to allow God's word to command people to live new and better lives. So the question for us, in a way, with a passion for life coming up, is how do we get people to open up the Bible this Easter? How do we get people to open up the Bible this Easter? So my first point is the importance of making a stand for what is right. My second point is this, the importance of a standard we must live out. Verse 19. Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. You see, as John's life matched the stand that he had made, he was a righteous and holy man. Now John here was putting Herod into a really difficult corner, but despite this, verse 20 tells us that Herod still liked to hear John. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, it says, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, if John had simply been a mud-throwing charlatan, Herod would have found him out straight away. But because John was righteous and holy, even in Herod's judgment, his stand could not be ignored. In another snippet of news this week, I've read that Silvio Berlusconi, the Italian prime minister, one of my favorite prime ministers around Europe, uh, was speaking to his parliament. And he was actually saying that the Italian schools should continue to display the crucifixes in every classroom. Hooray for Silvio Berlusconi, you might think. But something's not quite right, is it? Because if anybody of you uh, knows Silvio Berlusconi, he's hardly the person you would expect to be standing up for Christian values. His lifestyle suggests that he's never going to be a favorite at the Vatican. And it's the same for us in our lives, isn't it? If we are going to make a stand for Jesus, whether in public or one-to-one with a friend, we'd jolly well better make sure that the standards of our lives match the stand that we make. That's very easy to say, but what does it actually mean in practical terms? Well, Vaughan Roberts again tells a story about a man who wanted to recruit a chauffeur to drive his beloved, beautiful new Rolls Royce. He gave the three candidates a special challenge. Each one was to demonstrate, demonstrate their driving skill by driving the car as close as they could to a cliff edge. The first drove the car within a yard of the edge with no mishap. The second managed to drive even closer to the edge of the cliff. The third stayed a good 20 yards clear. The owner made his decision. 
He said, I'm giving the job to the third man because I don't want a chauffeur who's going to take any risks at all with my lovely new car. But perhaps some of us are taking risks with our personal holiness. It's so easy, isn't it, to watch the wrong type of telly, to view the wrong type of websites, or to flirt with the wrong people. Or perhaps our struggle is with anger caused by overtiredness or personal disappointment in our lives. And instead of going to bed earlier or dealing with the underlying issue, we feed and we nurture the anger we feel within us. Now, some of our church family won't have come here today because of the risk of slipping over on the pavements outside. And I don't blame them. Who can blame them? They're probably the sensible ones among us. But some of us take those types of risks every day by dicing with the slippery slopes of our personal holiness. So how can we avoid these slippery slopes? Well, briefly, firstly, we need to recognize our sin and say sorry. Second, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And third, we need to go on making the right decisions and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. In John's case, his personal holiness has an extra bonus. It kept him alive in Herod's dungeons, despite Herodias' clear desire to have him killed. Unfortunately, Herodias was a schemer, and she wasn't going to forget John that easily. So verse 21 tells us that she was looking for an opportune time to get her revenge. And finally, in verse 21, the conditions were right. There was a banquet, plenty of food, drink, and bonhomie. There was a heady mix of important guests. Herod was trying to impress his friends, and he couldn't afford to lose face. And all Herodias had to do was to set the trap by asking her daughter, that's Herod's stepdaughter, to dance. So in contrast to John, a righteous and holy man, Herod was here on his slippery slope of his own making. Excess, pride, lust, boasting. Suddenly the bonhomie and the good cheer is all gone in verse 26. And Herod's slippery slope has led Herod into the murder of a man who he respected. And it's led John's head onto a platter. It's a ridiculous story, isn't it? See, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He says about John, Among those born of women, there, is, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. You know, it's not a bad reference to have in your CV, is it? Jesus says, no one greater than John the Baptist. But here is this great man getting beheaded by a jumped-up, minor provisional, provincial ruler. As one commentator said, all because of a cocktail rager. It just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? And yet life is often like that for us too. There we are trying to make a stand for Jesus and trying to live good lives and then something terrible happens. And it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Henry Martin was born in the late 18th century. He gained a top first class uh, degree in maths from Cambridge and he was made a fellow of St. John's. He was promised a glittering academic career. 
but instead, under the influence of the great pastor Charles Simeon, he decided to get ordained and became a curate in a small village in Cambridgeshire. Shortly after, at the age of 24, he decided to go out to India. It took him one year to get there by a boat. Soon after, his health deteriorated. Seven years later, he died, aged 31. Wasn't that a huge waste of a talented man? Well, that leads me to my third and my final point, which is God uses even the senseless things in our lives to lead others to Christ. God uses even the senseless things in our lives to lead others to Christ. You see, that's the bigger picture behind what is going on here in Mark, on Mark 6. God's plan and purpose is that in John's own words, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. We see this in verse 14, where news of the disciples' mission has reached the king. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. The focus was on Jesus now, not on John. And in verse 29 we read, On hearing of this, that is John's death, John's disciple came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. And Matthew's Gospel adds this, John's disciple went and told Jesus what they had done. You see, even though he was the greatest man who ever lived, this is where the story of John the Baptist's life here on earth, this side of glory, ends, being laid out in a tomb. In contrast, the next thing that happens in Mark's account is that Jesus is surrounded by so many people coming and going that he and his disciples couldn't even sit down to eat in verse 31. Eventually, Jesus ended up feeding 5,000 men, let alone their women and their children, because so many of them wanted to hear him teach and to feel his touch. You see, all along, John's message had been, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when Paul meets somebody of John's remaining disciples, John's remaining disciples in Ephesus, later in Acts chapter 19, he tells them, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And Luke goes on and says, and on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. You see, it was God's purpose that John's disciples should leave him and turn to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. Despite what we might see as the senseless nature of John's death, his head on a platter. Just like Habakkuk had to trust that God knew what he was doing when he sent one naughty nation to look after another naughty nation, to teach another naughty nature. So was Henry Martin's short life a complete waste of a talented man? But during those seven years in India, he only saw one person converted, this brilliant man. But I think that God would say his work had been done. Because after his death, thousands were converted as a result of Martin's translations of the New Testament into Urdu, Arabic, and Persian, and which remained the basis of all mission work in that country for many, many years to come. See, God certainly did use his time in India, despite the apparent senselessness of a death of a brilliant man aged 31. You see, once we've decided to make a stand and live out God's standards, we're not necessarily protected from bad things happening to us, or even an early death in tragic circumstances. 
In fact, the Bible says that we may have to suffer many things because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. John was a great man. But when all is said and done, he was an Orthodox Jew who called the people to expect the Messiah. Jesus was also put to death by an unholy coalition of Jewish authorities and Roman occupiers. He was also laid out in the tomb by his followers. But that wasn't the end of Jesus' story here on earth. And that's why our stand and the standards we live by are still so important. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, come to a passion for life, we recognize that it's not only at missions when we are called to make our stand and to live by your standards. We pray that that would be our way of life from this moment forward, that we put our trust in you and in your words and we would live by it. And we will take every opportunity to share our faith with our friends. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.